Another day Another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went You can scream And you can holler Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's opinion of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate, it is almost always the case during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas for my personal mobile studio. And in what is becoming an early part of the week tradition, once again, I am not driving today. Uh, my son is actually driving as he works our way through traffic right now, weaving in and out of semi-trucks on our way up to Frisco, where he will be serving another day as an unpaid intern lesson for you young people out there that are looking to further your careers. All right, so um, we're going to continue with the new format, which is an intro segment followed by housekeeping followed by the main segment. Today I'm going to do something I think a lot of you guys are going to like, because a lot of you guys are into tactical and guns and stuff like that. I'm going to talk about... The reality of tactical preparations for the home. Not so much for an end-of-the-world scenario, which we're even going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, unrealistic views of that. But just just the day-to-day needs and requirements in your home to be able to defend your home from the actual threats that really exist, either during civil unrest or day-to-day, just the typical uh, people that would do harm. So that's going to be our subject today. And we're going to start out, though, with our intro segment. And uh, I want to do another episode of Best and Worst of the Ass Clown, being Barack Obama, but I need something he's doing right. Now, I even got an email from a guy praising me for being able to say what the guy does right. I spent all day this morning uh, looking for something the guy did right in the past couple days, couldn't find anything. So if you're a Barack Obama supporter, or if you're at least objective about him and you have anything that he's done right recently, let me know about it and we'll try to set up another one of those segments. Couldn't do that, so today um, I was gifted with ass clownery from our entire government system once again um, in relation to Bank of America. Now, if you're an informed person that pays attention to current events, you've probably already heard this, but Bank of America uh, was fined, and they were fined for defrauding their shareholders. So if you owned Bank of America stock, when the Merrill Lynch merger happened, they said, we won't pay the Merrill Lynch bonuses because they suck and they lost a bunch of money. They don't deserve the bonuses, and we'll buy the company, but we won't let the bonuses be paid. Well, they lied to their shareholders, and uh, $3.6 billion worth of bonuses were paid. Okay, so this is our government's... you got to follow this, because no one else is going to put it this way for you. This company defrauded its shareholders out of $3.6 billion. Our government solution is to fine them $33 million. So you as a shareholder got defrauded and lost um, $3.6 billion, and the government fixes it by making the company pay another $33 million, which of course reduces profits and reduces your dividends as a shareholder, so the shareholder got screwed twice. This is why we don't trust the government with money. Now here's a little more basic math for you. The federal government, to make the Merrill Lynch merger go through in the middle of bailout mayhem, gave Bank of America 20 
billion dollars of your taxpayer money for the merger. They paid $30.6 billion of it out in bonuses, and then our government smacks them on the hand by taking $33 million of it back. Now, here's the proposal I have for any of you. I want to know who would take me up on this. Here's what I'll do. I'll give you $20 billion. I require you to give $3.6 billion of it to a third party, and then in return, I will fine you $33 million, leaving you with a profit of about $16 billion at the expense of another third party. Would you take that deal? Duh! Okay? So, Bank of America came out ahead $16 billion in the deal. Their shareholders got hosed to the tune of about $3.93 billion, uh, of which $33 million um, was simply to uh, punish their shareholders further. Great job, Ass Clouds. Glad you're looking out for us, man. I am so glad that the government has the back of the hardworking, investing, middle-class American that put their money in the Bank of America. Thank you so much, you Ass Clouds. Now, if I'm going to do worse, let's try to do the best. This may be old news, but it will fit right in with today's show, so I decided to do it. Um, A few weeks ago, the Senate voted on a bill. And if passed, what this bill would have said is if a state has a concealed carry law, um, it allows concealed carry permits to be um, distributed. And a person from another state has a concealed carry permit from their state. Their state's permit has to be recognized by the other state. Now, you might say, well, that's reciprocity. It already exists. It exists with a lot of states, not all the states. There are states that have concealed carry laws. And generally, there are states that got the law passed when the legislature in that state looked a little bit different. And now, kind of an anti-gun legislature has taken over. But... They can't overturn the concealed carry law, but they can prevent anything that can increase his firearms liberty. So what this would have done is said, if your state has concealed carry, and a citizen of another state with a concealed carry permit comes to your state, he has to be allowed to carry. Now, think about this, folks. This is not much different than a driver's license. To say that Texas's concealed carry permit uh, should not be recognized by Florida. By the way, it is. Florida and Texas are reciprocity states. But just to say it that way, to make it simple, uh, would be like saying when you go to Florida, your Texas driver's license isn't any good. The, the one state's government isn't competent to uh, issue a license that would qualify in another state. So what's the best of this? Um, it failed, and it failed due to a filibuster, which means that people in the Senate just basically you know, read cookbooks and killed the vote on it and didn't let it through because it actually had enough people vote for it to pass without filibuster 58. The best of it is the Democrats that supported it. The chief Democrat that supported this, Senate Majority, leader Harry Reid, who just gets trashed by the right all the time. And I've mentioned this man before, and I do not agree with a lot of his politics, but this guy's not a gun hater. And when people in the gun, the pro-gun world make this guy to be gun hater, they do themselves a disservice. Here's another example of him standing up uh, for the Second Amendment. Uh, next, we had uh, Jim Webb and Mark Warner uh, from Virginia voted for this. Uh, John Tester and Ma- Max Bacchus of Montana and Evan Bayh of Indiana. 
they were all Democrats and they all voted for this. Now the ass clown Republicans that voted against it and allowed uh, the filibuster to continue. All we needed was two more votes. Two more votes to break the filibuster and send it on to the president, who probably wouldn't have signed it, but at least the legislation would have gotten through, and the president would have had to look at it and had to be the one to say yes or no on it. Um, these are George v- Vianovich and Dick Luger. George is from Ohio. Dick is from Indiana. If you live in one of those states, you know what to do. And I'll leave it at that, and we'll go into the uh, housekeeping. Uh, number one, make sure you're supporting our advertisers. Um, I got a new advertiser I talked to last night. Looks like they're going to come on board. Really cool group of guys. Uh, I think you're going to like them when they show up. Today's advertiser of the day is Ready Made Resources. They're absolutely awesome. Uh, a huge selection of really cool stuff. And I'll tell you what, download their PDF of their solar catalog. It is really cool what you can learn just from the information in that catalog. Uh, additionally, I mentioned Tactical Response yesterday and said they're running a special. Um, I wasn't clear on the special because James wasn't real clear on his email. But he's running a special in August. Big discounts um, for everybody uh, with better discounts for uh, active duty military and law enforcement personnel. Uh, but it's only for classes in Camden. I'll put a link to a uh, post about it today so you can find out more about the special that he has and how to claim it. If you want to go to Camden and take some really great training. Uh, next, if you haven't joined our forum, come on, man. Join our forum. There's like 2,000, 3,000 people on the forum. There's like 10,000 people listening to the show. We miss you. We want you there. If you're an international listener, you're really wanted. I'm telling you, the international folks are saying, where are our brothers? Um, next, Region 6 having a big get-together. Shannon Appleby can tell you more about that. Link in today's show notes. And uh, if you think this show is worth more than 20 cents an episode, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You get exclusive content available only to members, uh, including a $19 retail value lifetime discount membership uh, to Save Castle Royals Discount Club and some other stuff. All in all, it adds up to $64 uh, that you get for either $50 or $60 a year, depending on how you pay monthly or annually. Alright, with that, we're going to get into today's subject. And uh, Again, it's going to be, what kind of threats do we really face in our homes, and how should we prepare for them from a firearm standpoint? This is a subject I don't talk about much, and I think that people think that maybe um, I'm not into the tactical aspects of things, and if you were to look at my gun collection, you'd see that I most certainly am. I just don't talk about this subject that much because I feel there are so many places to get information out of about it. There has to be, oh my God, several dozen podcasts uh, about firearms, firearm ownership, handguns, concealed carry, uh, tactical preparations, things like that, that are dedicated to that market segment. And there's got to be 20 of them that are pretty damn good. Handgun Podcast is a great one to look up on iTunes. Um, There's just a lot of really great ones out there. So I don't talk about it so much, not because it's not important, but because there's plenty of outlets if you want to know how to slick up your Colt Commander or how to trick out your AR-15. And if you want to hear somebody debate the merits of the AR-15 or M16 versus the AK-47, you can find that till you're blue in the face. So why do more of something that's available when most of what I do isn't? 
And it, it, it fills a need that's out there in the market. It's why I put the show together. But firearms are a part of that need. So that's what we're going to talk about them today. But I think when we talk about them, the first thing we have to do is we have to be real with what are the threats that we face in our homes. What is most likely? Now, a lot of you guys are what I call Internet warriors, right? You guys have your slicked-out AR-15. So if this is you, don't get offended. Just understand where I'm coming from. Uh, you got your slicked-out main battle rifle. you got your knife. you got your web gear. you got your paramount military equipment, you got Kevlar helmet maybe, I mean you are ready for battle and I just don't know who you think you're going to fight. Um, this this myth that exists in the minds of people that one day the new world order will come or some version thereof and we're going to have force on force engagements with a renegade rebel war in the United States is just not very realistic. And uh, if you go play Red Dawn then you're likely to end up with a JDAM up your ass and dead. So, it's not that I don't believe we could never get into a complete and total breakdown scenario where some level of that's required. I just think some of you guys that take it to extremes are living in a fantasy world that doesn't exist. I know some of you will get pissed off over that. I'm sorry. Remember, this is one man's opinion. You are welcome to differ with me and make your case, and I will let it be heard. But what are the threats that we really do face? Well, every day in America, somebody breaks into somebody's home several times over a hundred. Alright? Every day. And every day in America, somewhere, a citizen is assaulted, stabbed, shot, beaten, kicked, uh, attacked in one shape, form, or another. So the biggest threats that we face day-to-day as individuals are from other individuals or other small groups. And they generally involve either just the simple bodily harm for the thrill of it by the scum that will do that, or they involve the intentional theft of property, or the mentally deranged individual that decides to go out on a blaze of glory. Those are the three big threats. So when we look at arming ourselves... In the home, outside the home, getting a concealed carry permit, all of these things, taking tactical training. These are the areas that we should focus on first, at least in my view. Now, to me, if we're going to do that, if you're going to own a gun, if you're going to own a pistol, a carbine, a shotgun, what have you, I don't care what it is, there's certain questions that I consider that your answer to them uh, are the most important factors about whether or not that gun is going to be useful to you. Number one is, can you get to your gun in a time of threat? And I think a lot of people that store their weapons around their home are under the mistaken impression that in any given threat they're going to be able to get to their gun fast. Guy on the forum today said he can get to any from any room in his house. He's no more than five seconds away from a gun. And all I would say is if I kick your door down and come through it, and I'm some douchebag, it takes me about one and a half seconds to line the sights up on you and pull the trigger. So you're three and a half seconds too late. Now, this is why I'm an advocate. If you're a concealed carry holder, carry in your home. And uh, we had a good question on the forum about that today. And that's what part of kind of stimulated me in this direction. Uh, a guy from Australia, and some of you guys were mean to him. But don't be mean to people when they ask questions. This guy was not putting down U.S. gun law. He simply said, I'm from Australia, and I'm not accustomed to this. I heard on the show to carry in your home. I want to know if people really do this. And if so, why? What's your rationalization? Is it overreacting? Or if you don't think it is, why don't you? So it's a very reasonable question. So you guys are nasty to him. Don't do that. I'm going to come down on you. I'll negative karma you or worse. All right. So 
Here's my response to that, though. If a person carries every day, they carry when they go to work, they carry when they go to the store, they carry when they go, they just carry. They're a carrier. They have a permit. They're legally carrying. They have a pistol. It's on their body at all times when they're out and about. Except when they go through those dumbass gun-free zones or what have you. Or a building that expressly by law forbids the carrying of weapons inside. So except in those indications they're carrying, this means uh, that they will go out of their way to find a comfortable way to carry at all times. So when that person comes home, you tell me what's more convenient. To continue to do what they've done all day long or to go upstairs and disarm and secure the weapon somewhere. To me, it just makes more sense for that person to continue to carry. It's not a great intellectual leap to figure that out. Now, let's say the person does disarm, and about an hour later, they decide to take the dog for a walk, and because they're involved with two or three other things and talking to the kids, they don't arm themselves to take the dog for a walk. They're approached by, I don't know, a couple pit bulls, the way that my wife was approached by a couple pit bulls running our neighborhood just a week ago. Don't have his gun. Bad situation, it's worse. Now, in my my wife's situation, she grabbed the dog, went the other way. They didn't have to follow. What if they did? And you have a person that's unarmed. So there's you know one instance. Now, the other instance is you sit down to your meal with your family. Of course, you're not armed. You don't want to be a gun nut. And some douchebag kicks your door in and comes in while you're eating dinner. Uh, excuse me, douchebag. Uh, would you please wait for me while I go retrieve my gun from under the couch or upstairs under my bed or what have you? So to me, it just makes sense if you're already carrying just to continue to carry. That does not mean if you wake up and go downstairs for a cup of coffee first thing in the morning, necessarily you stuff the 1911 into your boxer shorts. So that's how I meant that. But I think that that is something you have to think about. Can you get to your gun in an emergency in the first place? If you can't answer that with a resounding yes in a way that makes you comfortable based on reality, you need to address that situation. Two is, can can you use your gun effectively? And can your family use your gun effectively? If you're not home and you keep a loaded shotgun in the home as a defensive weapon and your wife doesn't know how to use it, somebody breaks in the house, that gun actually represents a bigger threat to her than a defense. If she's not comfortable with it and she doesn't know how to use it properly. So you have to make sure that any weapon that's going to be relied upon for defense, if you have a big collection and you have a whole bunch of guns and stuff that's locked up in a safe, it's not necessary for every family member to know the ins and outs and workings of every single gun. Not a bad idea either. But if you have a main group of defensive weapons that are considered defensive weapons from the home, everybody should be intimately familiar. How do I load? How do I unload? You know, I didn't do that with my wife initially. One night they heard a sound in Pennsylvania. I'm traveling. She grabbed one of the pistols, rammed the, cha- rammed the chamber home, knew how to do that, realized there was no threat, and then was afraid to unload the gun. And I'm sitting on a phone in Hartford, Connecticut, talking her through unloading this gun. And I went, that's not going to happen again. And, of course, it never has. But I'm glad I got an, you know, an opportunity to correct that error that did have dire consequences. So making sure that everybody can effectively use the guns is extremely important. Next is, are you mentally prepared? Are you mentally prepared to actually shoot somebody if you have to? If you're not, you have a problem. Because drawing your gun will probably get you killed if the other party is armed. In fact, it almost will most definitely get you killed if the other party is armed. 
It will also often embolden an attacker to attempt to disarm you if you are mentally unprepared to pull the trigger, if you have to. That doesn't mean you want to, but you're mentally prepared. If you aren't willing to, if you haven't got yourself in the right mental state, it will show, and when you draw down on a assailant, even when it's unarmed, he's a lot more likely to try to disarm you. And since you're not mentally prepared, you're not going to pull the trigger when you have to. That's telegraphed. And the other side is, are you mentally prepared to not shoot when you don't have to? This is so important. And what I mean by that is, there are situations that you may end up in that seem very dangerous, but they're not requiring lethal force. Have you mentally prepared yourself to not get nervous and yank the trigger when you don't need to? And to be ready to evaluate any given situation, positive or negative. If you haven't done that, you're not prepared in the right way. And the next thing, and you know, kind of what I've already talked about a little bit, is are you grounded in reality? When you think about a home invasion scenario, do you see your wife with a rifle up in the window and your kid in the, you know, in the garage on the floor and you running through the, the trees in your backyard and doing, you know, buddy ready, buddy moving techniques like they teach you in the army? If you see that in your head, I think you need to change the mental TV channel to something that's more realistic and more likely to occur. And there's a lot of people that I can tell just by the way that they write blogs or they post in forums that are in that world. That world is not reality. It doesn't happen. Every month I get the American Rifleman as a member of the NRA. And in the front of that magazine, there's always a section called The Armed Citizen. It's all the news stories that are little newspapers and magazines across the country that you never hear about on national news TV because it shows guns in a positive light. And it's always, you know, some old man is working in his garage teetering around with his weed whacker or something, and some scumbag comes in and tries to rob him, and he pulls out 38 and shoots the douchebag in the chest and kills him. Or, you know, an old lady's in a house, guy breaks in and she pulls out a 32 auto, puts six rounds in the guy, he runs down the street, and they find him piled up in a corner, and maybe he lives, maybe he doesn't. If he doesn't live, we don't feel bad about it. Those articles are there. There's, on average, I would say, about 9 to 12 of them every month. I've never once read about a family arming themselves and running around in a tactical environment. Things don't take that long to work themselves out. They happen quick, nasty, and dirty, and you have to be ready to respond. And if you live in that fantasy world, you're not going to be ready to respond the right way to the right situation. And more importantly, you're probably going to be one of those people that either think you're mentally prepared to pull the trigger when you have to and are not, or so overreactive will pull the trigger at some horrific time when you should not. So if you think that way, I'm telling you right now, you need to take some good, solid training, and I can't recommend anybody more than James Yeager, our sponsor, for that training. And if not him, some are going to fronts I go somewhere and learn reality and learn what fighting is really about when firearms are included it's fast and it's nasty and there's no glory in it and you hope it never happens but you're prepared if it does so let's talk a little bit from there about choosing what you would actually arm yourself with let's talk about choosing a handgun Um, there's a million choices and here's how I feel about it you should carry or arm yourself with the largest caliber handgun that you could shoot well. If 
the largest caliber handgun that you can shoot well is a 380, then that's what you should arm yourself with. If the largest caliber handgun that you can shoot well that is practical for you to carry is a 45, so be it. If you find a 44 Magnum that carries well on your body and it's small and you can still shoot it well, fine. With some exceptions. You don't need to be, you know, driving bullets through people and going through three or four people and you can't over, you know, overblow this thing. But my point is, don't settle for a 32 if you can carry and shoot a 40 well. Because there is something to be said for making sure that when you pull the trigger, the bullet does its job. And a larger caliber weapon simply does its job better. Uh, I think it was Wild Bill that they asked one time, um, why do you carry a forty-five? And his response was, because they don't make a forty-six. To a degree, I really identify with that. Now, do I think you should be running around with a giant six-inch barrel or seven-and-a-half-inch barrel stainless steel Ruger Red Hawk forty-four Magnum as your concealed carry gun? I think it's a terrible carry gun. But you get my point there. Um, I'm a big fan for handguns, for carry, of either a good revolver or a semi-auto. In a lot of states, you're probably going to want a semi-auto, at least as one of your guns, if you're going to get a concealed carry permit, because they have this weird idea that if you go qualify with a semi-auto, then you're qualified to carry a semi-auto or a revolver as a carry weapon. But if you go qualify with a revolver, you're not qualified to carry a semi-auto. Um, I see a little bit of logic there, but I think it's a bit ridiculous. I honestly do. I mean, either I can be trusted with a weapon or I can't. Uh, my state of Texas has this nonsense. So make the, if you're buying like a first handgun, you're planning on taking concealed carry, uh, you might really want to consider a semi-auto just for that reason alone. Uh, but I think both are good defensive weapons. You have higher capacity with a semi-auto. But again, these real situations are short duration. They're, they're not a guy standing there firing 100 rounds. That's not how they work out. Um, not when somebody's shooting back. And uh, so I think you can choose just about any handgun that fits you well. What I'll tell you, and I think is one of the great ways that you can uh, really decide if a weapon's right for you, is instead of just reading gun mags and everything like that, go out to a local indoor handgun range uh, that also is a gun store. And most of the time, they'll have a whole variety of weapons that you can rent. Rent a, a plethora of handguns. Um, examine how they'll fit on your body. Shoot them. Get familiar with them. Find the one that fits you best. Um, there are some junk guns out there, but most of the guns that are of you know mid-price and upper-price point uh, and buy quality guns for defense. Um, you know, I, I like high points. I think they're fun to shoot. I wouldn't rely on one. So they're they're like a cheap fun gun, right? For carry, no way. I'm not going to be walking around with a high point C9. If I have any other choice in the world, terrible carry gun, not the most reliable thing in the world. So, you know, stick to reliability. But other than that, stick to what fits you. Trust me, at typical handgun defense ranges, it ain't fun to get shot by a 32. It ain't fun to get shot by a 25. Just believe that bigger is better up to a degree. Choosing a shotgun for home defense, I'm a huge believer in forget the tactical shotguns. I think that if you ever get in a situation where you use it and the wrong district attorney wants to fry you, um, it gives it more ammunition to walk around with a silver and black heat-shielded shotgun and go, look what this man used to kill my kill this poor victim. 
because he's got some kind of hard on against guns or something. I think you're giving ammunition to the enemy that you don't need to give to the enemy. I think that if you get a nice 870 that's pretty much designed for hunting, 26, 28 inch barrel, buy yourself a nice short youth model barrel for it, 18 inches, I think you can get them in. Um, you know, pull the plug out, load it up. It does the same thing that tactical shotgun does, especially in a home situation. You're not in World War One in a trench where you have to worry about your gun rusting itself shut. Okay? And you're not going to play the Red Dawn game again with your shotgun. I'm sorry. It's not realistic. Let's be, you know, grounded in reality. If you want a gun like that, go ahead. I'm not going to get upset with you. Uh, in fact, if you have a gun like that and you show it to me, I'm going to admire it and look at it. That's really cool. I uh, can't say I won't ever own one. But for home defense... In all practicality, a loaded number four buckshot out of an 870 that looks like it's made for dove hunting and a load out of a black and silver one are the same to the target and may be perceived differently in a court of law by a group of 12 people that weren't intelligent enough to figure out how to get out of jury duty. All right? Now, I know that some people go to jury duty because they feel it's their civic duty. If that's you, I'm not offending you. I'm telling you, there's a whole bunch of people that don't want to be there. They want to get out of it and can't figure out how to say one or two things to get themselves kicked off. And in a court of law, you may be entrusting yourself to no, five or six people that are there to serve and five or six people that are too stupid to figure out how to get out of it. Those five or six people scare the hell out of me, folks. Um, so that's that's my thoughts there with a shotgun. For defensive shotgun loads, um, number four bucks probably your best bet. I'm still a big believer that if you load up some copper-plated BBs um, in home defense situations, you're not going to have any problems. You're going to reduce over-penetration issues. Uh, next on considering carbines, um, carbines are okay. Uh, I have one of the uh, Keltec Sub 2000s. I think it's actually an ideal home defense weapon. Very light with a single point sling. It's impossible for somebody to disarm it, uh, get it away from you. With a single point sling, it would be very difficult for them to turn it back on you. Um, it would be much easier to control and shoot. Available in 9mm and 40 Smith and Wesson. Good solid defense uh, rounds. Loaded up with uh, Glazer safety slugs. You're not going to have over penetration issues. You'll definitely put the target down. High capacity. City Magazine, great little gun. Uh, there's some other ones out there. You know, I know guys think their AR-15 or CAR-15, their carbines are uh, are great home defense weapons. If you think that, I don't really have a problem with it. I just think they're that you'd be better off in most situations with something a little bit smaller in a tight, confined area uh, where the assailant's first reaction is going to be to push the barrel out of their way and then try to pull the weapon out of your hand. Now, the same thing can be said for the carbine. Uh, AR, as can be said, where the, the, the sub 2000 with the right sling, it's almost impossible to take away. So, if you're using a carbine as a home defense weapon, I really recommend a good solid tactical sling to go along with it. Uh, that you do not have to unsling the weapon in order to bring it to bear. So, so those are just uh, some some thoughts on that. Let's talk about some other things, though, beyond just the guns that you have and defending yourself with them. Real briefly, I think that it's a good idea for you 
you to have a 22 rifle and a 22 pistol. And if you carry a revolver, make the pistol the 22 pistol or revolver. Uh, if you carry an automatic, make the 22 pistol an automatic. The Sig Mosquito is a great 22 automatic. Um, your rifle is your choice. I think they're all pretty much the same um, from a quality standpoint today. There's no bad 22 rifles out there. Uh, but I mean, I'm a big fan of the Ruger 1022. I'm a big fan of the Marlin uh, Model 25 for the bolts. Uh, the Marlin, Marlin Model 70 with the tubular magazines for semi-auto. Uh, those are three of my favorites. We own all of those. Uh, my son's first uh, first rifle was uh, 15Y by Marlin, which is basically a scaled-down Model 25 single shot. Um, so I'm a big fan of the Marlin weapons. So the whole point, though, is to do high-volume shooting with a 22 because it costs less, and it's, it's less noisy, uh, and you'll be able to shoot more often with a 22 than you will with a 45 uh, or a 9mm or a 40, just because of finance and logistics alone. So I do recommend that you do a lot of training with your 22s uh, and make sure that they're part of your battery and understand that they are a great alternative also for putting small game in the pot for hunting or for surviving situations. Uh, you really don't want to try to eat a squirrel that's been shot um, with a 40 Smith and Wesson. 22, much better, uh, much better uh, amount of uh, food left for actual consumption. They say with bullets, the interesting thing is you can eat right up until the hole when you're talking about game. The bigger the hole, the less there is to eat. So I do recommend 22s, at least a pistol and a rifle um, for the family and if, if you have the means, maybe for every shooting member of the family have their own 22s. I also think that there's a lot of lot to be said for training with airsoft guns, mainly because you can train in your backyard. And I think one of the things that we need to do with airsoft guns to make training more realistic is set up man-sized targets and put them in situations where you're at a disadvantage. You have to draw the weapon and move and shoot at the same time. And you can do things that are a little bit, like, let's call them more risky with airsoft than you can with live ammunition um, to see where the problems are before they have dire consequences. And to realize, can I bend this way and make a shot? Can I turn this way and make a shot? Uh, you cannot always get into a good frame, right, with two hands on the weapon, with your knees slightly bent, your shoulders forward, and your sights aligned with your eyes. You can't always get in that situation. Put yourself in other situations and move. And use the semi-auto airsoft uh, uh, weapons for that trait. No, it's not the same. No, it doesn't have the recoil, but it will teach you about muscle memory. And it will teach you where you can and cannot make the shot. And it will allow you to do things with increased heart rates, with other people working with you, without the danger of killing someone or being arrested in your backyard for discharge of a firearm. I think air guns serve that purpose as well, but to a lesser degree. Uh, they have a far more damaging effect than what they're able to do. But they're also, because of that, good for harvesting small game. So having a good quality air, air pistol and air rifle uh, that you also use for shooting and use for small game harvesting, especially in areas where firearm discharge can't be used for pest control and things like that, good additional thing to do as well. Um, on the last thing, I want to talk real briefly about storing ammo and reloading. 
I think some people go a little bit nuts with the ammo storage. Um, I don't think you need 10,000 rounds of 9mm. I'm not going to fault you for it, but I think it's a bit excessive. And I think that if you ever end up in trouble with the law, even for something you didn't do, it's going to be in every newspaper in the world. This man had 10,000 rounds of 9mm, 400,000 rounds, you know, whatever. I mean, that, that stuff gets done. I remember one one time a guy got pulled over for a traffic incident uh, in a small town of Pennsylvania. Um, he ended up having his registration expired on his vehicle, and he had a warrant for his arrest. Now, the warrant for his arrest was for not paying a traffic ticket. Uh, the newspaper article that ran about him said that he had over 2,000 rounds of ammunition and a weapon on him when he was arrested. Well, he had a, he had a shotgun uh, with a, with about 100 rounds of 12-gauge birdshot, uh, like number 8 or number 9, something like that, because he had been dove hunting. And on the way home, wherever this place he hunted, it was apparently close to a sporting goods store where he got good deals on ammunition. So he had purchased four bricks of twenty twos because he was far from home and didn't go back there often, and they were on sale. So he had two thousand rounds of twenty twos, no twenty two in the car. But the press, even in this small town where people hunt and fish every day, ran this story. He had over two thousand rounds of ammunition, and people that were supposed to have a brain, people that had hunted their whole life, said, "Well, he was." Planted some, yeah, he was planning to take this cheaply priced ammunition home to his house and put it in his home uh, where he did a lot of planking with his twenty-two. That's what he was planning. He wasn't, you know, they, like he was planning a robbery or something. So, uh, ammunition storage, I think, is important, but it can be overdone. I also think people way underdo it. You, you know, you talk to people, well, what do you have? I have a forty-five auto as my uh, sidearm. Okay, how many rounds of ammo you got? I got a box, fifty rounds. That's not one day at the range, guys. So you got to up the ammo storage a little bit more than that. My view is for every caliber in the home, I hate to say this this way, but I guess you got to put a minimum on anything. It's about 200 rounds. Minimum. So if you have a 306, 200 rounds, 306. If you have a 308, 200 rounds, 308. Yeah, both 200 rounds of each. Uh, that's a personal thing for me. But I think it also can be mitigated by total ammo stored. So let's say that you uh, your primary weapons are a nine millimeter and a two two three and a thirty oh six and a shotgun. So two hundred rounds of shotgun ammo, uh, two hundred rounds of each of those, and then you also have a seven millimeter magnum that you do elk hunting with in Colorado once a year. But you don't need 200 rounds of that. But the primary stuff you have, that's a that's a bare minimum. I think you should have more. I also think you should look into reloading, and here's why. It allows you to have the the novelty of cartridge uh, uh, variety. And, and then kind of supply yourself with enough components to load a lot of ammunition without actually having it all in different cal- uh, different cartridges. So what I mean is you could have, let's say, a 308, a 3006, and a 3030, and you could have a lot of interchangeability among powder types, primer types, and uh, bullet types, with your only variability being the cartridges, and then you could keep a certain quantity of cartridges for each and load them as needed, and that gets you greater flexibility. Reloading ammunition is also less expensive. Uh, it's a great hobby. It will give you more self-sufficiency, and it's easier to store a high volume of cartridge cases, um, powders, and bullets and primers than it is fully loaded ammunition. Um, when it comes to the expense, you don't necessarily have to load it all up right away, so you can 
should have the capability to expand your ammo on hand at any time it should you need to do so. And it's also just a valuable skill to have. So this has been a different show than usual today. I mean, we've covered a lot of lot of ground in a little bit of time, and hopefully it's made you think. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's maybe brought you some doses in reality if you needed that. If you're already grounded in reality, maybe it's made you think a little bit differently about the way you do things. Hopefully it's answered the question of our Australian friend of why a person would choose to carry on their person in their home. And hopefully it, it's made people that maybe are a little bit on the fence about guns understand the practicality and the actual need. Um, to have a, a house full of stored goods and be ready for a cataclysmic event and a, and a garden and have all the things that you need to get through a problem, and then you don't have the ability to defend yourself and your family if somebody comes to take that away, that's a gaping hole. Again, I don't talk about it a lot. It's just because there's other sources of information that are specialized in that. But it is very, very important. It is a key plank to modern survival philosophy. It's not about fighting the new world order. It's about defending and protecting the things and the people that you love. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.